Go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 8. If you're using the the Bible and the chairs in front of you, it's on page 950 is where we'll be starting today. We're going through this series called The Jesus That You Should Know. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, suburbs of Kansas City, and so I have been really enjoying the success of the Kansas City Chiefs. Two weeks ago, they won their second Super Bowl in a row. Uh, And if you look back at the last five years, they've been to the Super Bowl five times, won three of them. No, four times, sorry, four times. Exaggerating here. (laughs) Four times uh, and won three of them. And if you don't know the Chiefs, their quarterback is Patrick Mahomes. And because of his talent and success and the success of the team, Uh, What you'll see on different sports talk shows are debates about whether or not you could already say that Patrick Mahomes is the greatest of all time. Uh, Sometimes they'll say things like, he's the best that we've ever seen, but he's not the greatest of all time. And some are saying, no, let's already say he's the greatest of all time. And so these shows thrive on these kinds of debates and arguments Uh, Sometimes I think they just randomly pick sides and then they argue them and someone will make a claim and then they're going to to put up on the screen these statistics to try to persuade you to believe the claim that they're making. So someone will say something about Patrick Mahomes and then they'll, they'll show, well, look at how many touchdowns he's had, look at his total yards, look at his win percentage, look at his completion percentage, completions versus interceptions or touchdowns versus interceptions. And sometimes the statistics get a little goofy and they'll say like, well, look at how he does when it's 45 degrees and he's playing on the East Coast against teams with blue jerseys and they get very, very specific But overall, they're making some kind of a claim, and then they want to persuade you to believe it. Uh, Or then someone will make the opposite claim. No, it's Tom Brady, and here's, here's why. Look at these statistics, these reasons why this is true. And and John, in his gospel, he has written this to persuade. He hasn't written this just to entertain us. He hasn't written this to just inform us. He has written this to persuade his readers to believe something, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. So this is the purpose statement that John gives us at the end of this book in John 20. These things I've written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that that belief would have eternal implications for your soul. He's offering eternal life. And so John wants us to know something about Jesus and to respond to it to respond to it with faith, and that that faith leads to life eternal. There's nothing greater in all of the world. And so how does he do that? He makes this claim. How How does he back that up? What are the arguments that he's making? In John 1, we've gone through seven chapters so far. In John 1, he calls Jesus by several different titles. 
Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Word. He's the Son of Man. He's the Lamb of God. He is the true King. And at the end of, of this prologue, he says he is himself God. And he describes him with actions that only God could do, saying that, that Christ, the Son of God, this logos, this word, is the one who created everything, everything that exists, everything that was ever created was created by the Son, he says. And he, these attributes of God, he's eternal. And there are, there are more probably that we could have looked at in, in John 1, but here's, here's some of them. And then in John 2, he starts showing us these miracles of Jesus. He calls them the signs these, these, because they're signifying something about who Jesus is. And so in chapter 2, he, he tells us this story of Jesus turning water into wine. And he tells us the story of the, the healing of the official's son and then the healing of the the man who was disabled, and then the, the walking on water and the feeding of the 5,000. And so he's showing us these signs because he's trying to persuade us to believe in Jesus. And then also in John's gospel, there, there are these I am statements. Ego eimi is the Greek. As Jesus says, I am, and then seven different times he's, he's describing himself using imagery. And so two weeks ago, we saw him Say, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. And in each one of these, each one of these I am statements is shining a different light on Jesus, a different perspective about who he is. The bread of life was, was showing us that only Jesus can satisfy the deepest hungers of our soul, that we need food to, to live. And in that same way, we need Christ for eternal life. Similarly, he's, he says, I will give you the living water, that, that it's only through him that those thirsts can be quenched. And, but, but now, this second I am statement we're going to see in John 8, where he says, I am the light of the world. And in John 8, Jesus makes three different offers that we're going to see as, as, as John's doing this. Here in this chapter, he's, he's still trying to persuade us to believe in Jesus, to find our hope and our life in him. And we're going to see through this chapter three offers that Jesus makes. Offer of grace and an offer of light and an offer of freedom. And when you just hear those, you think, that sounds good. Who would object to that? But by the time we get to the end of John 8, they pick up stones, rocks, to throw at Jesus to try to kill him. And so we will see as we look at these offers and the authority that Jesus claims to have to make these offers that it demands a response from us. This is what John's doing all through his gospel. He's not just aiming at our minds to know these things about Jesus. He wants us to really believe them and respond to them. And so let's look at this first offer Jesus makes. I'm not going to reread verses 1 through 11. We read it at the beginning of our service. But we'll see here that Jesus offers grace to all who fall in sin. 
You, you might see this is the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, and your, your Bible might have a little note there that says that these verses don't appear in the earliest manuscripts that we have of, of John's gospel. And so there is, there is some debate of, of does, that, does that story happen here? Uh, or should it have been somewhere else in John's gospel? Or in one of the other gospels? Or, or, or just is it something that was true that people knew about that was added in later? Most Bible scholars, though, do, don't argue about was this an event that actually happened? And either way, this story illustrates for us something that the rest of the Bible declares as true in the way that Jesus, the way that God responds to us in our sin. This is consistent with God's character toward us in our sin. But this scene is, is beautiful. It's filled with emotion if you enter into this scene, if you imagine yourself as this woman, and we don't know why they didn't bring the man, but we do know that they brought this woman to Jesus for the wrong reason. They were not concerned about her. They were not concerned even about holiness and, and purity. It says that they brought her to Jesus for this reason. They were using her to test him. They were using her to see what would Jesus say, to try to, to try to catch him. And so Jesus says, the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, I mean, she may have flinched, braced herself, but one by one they leave. And in this tender moment, doesn't say this, but I would imagine here Jesus looking deeply into her eyes. And saying to her, where, where are your accusers? Who's left to condemn you? No one. And then Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And, and, and here is the heart of Jesus toward us in our sin. He does not condemn, but he also does not condone that's not original. That's, that's something that others have said about this passage, that Jesus, Jesus does not condemn. He's offering grace and forgiveness, but he's not saying, so just go continue in your sin. He's not saying that it does not matter. He is calling her to repent, to, to leave it and to turn away from it. But Jesus here is offering grace and mercy and forgiveness Imagine the, the emotion that she was feeling of fear and shame and regret, deep regret, embarrassment and humiliation and maybe anger with herself. Why did I, why did I do this? Why did I make this choice? And, and maybe feeling unforgivable, unlovable, undesirable, hopeless, stuck, worthless. And we feel the depth of these emotions as we look into our own lives and see our sinfulness. And when we are there, call to your mind this image of Jesus who says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. 
Turn, turn from that and turn to me. Jesus isn't here calling for sinless perfection. We look at the rest of the Bible and there's implications all the way through that that Christians will continue sinning the rest of our lives. But there is a turning from it. There is a turning toward Christ. There is a a desire to say, no, I'm, I'm not wanting to keep living for that. Jesus, I'm wanting to live for you. And to you, Jesus then is offering grace and forgiveness. And that leads us to verse 12, where we'll see this second offer that Jesus makes. I'm going to read verses 12 all the way down through verse 29. And here Jesus offer light to all who follow him. Look what it says. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. You don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Just pause here for a moment. The words that Jesus has already spoken are provocative enough that John says the only reason they don't seize him right now is because it's not God's timing yet. His hour has not yet come. So Jesus goes on. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus said again, he won't kill him. Sorry, so the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, You will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning. Jesus told them, I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. 
So Jesus here, opening of this scene, says to them, I am the light of the world. It's possible that this statement is a continuation of of the the scene that was happening back in chapter 7 that Patrick preached about last week, this, this festival. And one of the ceremonies of that festival also was a lighting ceremony. And so possibly right at that moment as they were lighting the lights, Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. Or, or even if not that background specifically, the Old Testament background and imagery of light also would have been in their minds. In Psalm 19, Psalm 119, it says God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And, and so it is, it's God's word that that makes sense of this dark world. And you can, you can imagine a, a scene, you're in the forest or you're, you're somewhere where you cannot see anything and you're, you're stepping very carefully. You don't know where to take the next step. And, and this imagery of light to show you here is the right way. Here is the truth. Here is what is, is good. And God's word It's the words, the revelation of God that that does that for us, that shows us what is good, that opens up our eyes to reveal who God is and what way is best. Psalm 27 says, The Lord, Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. In the the Old Testament wanderings at night, they would follow this pillar of fire. And that that, that light is what would lead them and, and guide them. And so all this Old Testament imagery of light, Jesus now saying, I am the light of the world. You want to know what's true? You want to know what's right? You don't want to remain in darkness? Then you find it in me. Bread is essential for life. And in that same way, we need Christ to live. Light is essential for life. And and Jesus says, I am that light. And so they, they then challenge that. There's objections. There's a debate that's going on through this chapter. And the Pharisees say, your testimony is not valid, Jesus. You can't say those things. You can't say those things on your own. And Jesus says, if you knew who I am, if you knew where I came from and where I'm going, I know that what I'm saying is true, even if it doesn't live up to your human standards. He says, I don't, I don't judge by your human standards. But then he goes on to say, but even if you do need that, your law says two witnesses are what is needed. I testify about myself and my father testifies about me as well. But, but there's still misunderstanding. And they say, where, where is your father? It's, it's like they're looking around to see, where, where is he? Oh, we haven't heard him testify. And they're misunderstanding this all the way through. And so then Jesus says, I'm from above. So now he's, he's starting to say, here's the authority Authority that he has to make this kind of a claim. To claim to be light. You have to have, you have, to have authority, grounds on which to say those things. And so, so Jesus says this, and as he starts, he starts to contrast himself with them, the antagonism starts to build. He says, I'm from above, you're from below. 
I'm from my Father. You're from here on this earth. I'm going there. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And then three times in here, he gives the judgment, the verdict. If you don't follow the light of the world, you will remain in darkness. And he says, you will die in your sins. He says it again, you will die in your sins. And a third time, you will die in your sins. So Jesus here is saying, if you do not follow me, you will remain in darkness. This is the way that Paul describes our salvation, that when you When Jesus rescues you, when he saves you, he transfers you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. If you do not follow me, you will stay in darkness and you will die in your sins. Now, I think I want to draw our attention to two different I am statements that Jesus makes. So we've got the I am the light of the world. There's actually three in this passage where he says, I am, and then there's nothing after it. That's how it ends. In verse 24 and 28, they're not written that way in the English translations, but in the Greek, that's, it's all it says is, ego, me, I am. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that, and then it says, ego, Amy, I am, you will die in your sins. And I think this, this he that's added is a, is, is a possible interpretation of that, and that's possibly what they thought that he was saying. If you do not believe that I am he, well, who's he? He's the one who is from above. If you don't believe that I am the one from above, because they don't react. There's, there's no immediate anger here. We're going to see that at the end of this chapter. But Jesus saying, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Look at verse 28. He calls himself the son of man, which also, the more we know about Christ, points us back to this Daniel 7 image. We've talked about that, seen that already in John's gospel. Jesus claiming to be this divine son of man. But in verse 28, it says, so Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am, or I am he, I am the son of man. But, but here, Jesus is making these claims. And so what does this tell us about what it means that Jesus is the light of the world? What's he, as he's continuing on this theme, I think one is that when Jesus is lifted up, and this is a, a word for exaltation or glorification. But what's unique is that Jesus also uses that word, that phrase, to describe being lifted up on the cross. And so maybe double meaning there of when he's lifted up on the cross or when he's resurrected and ascended. But this, this climax of the gospel of Jesus' death and and resurrection and ascension to glory, that when he is lifted up, that is when we know. That is when his glory is most on display. And that's how he can be 
the light in this dark world. It's through his sacrifice. It's through the good news of the gospel that Jesus foretelling his death and his resurrection that when the Son of Man is lifted up, he is the light shining into the darkness. John's gospel opens by saying that the word was made flesh and lived or dwelt among us and we have seen, we beheld his glory. And so I think here's another way that Jesus is the light of the world. It's that through Christ we see the glory of God, the, the light of the glory of God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, this creation language, is the one, same God, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light, the, the truth, the being able to open our eyes and to see the glory of God, we see that on display in the face of Christ, in the death of Christ, in the glory of Christ. Jesus offers grace to all who fall in sin, which is all of us. Jesus offers light to all who follow him, to turn to him and, and follow him. And next we're going to see that Jesus offers freedom to all who are truly his disciples. Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed him. Well, that's unique because when you keep reading what's next, we can tell Jesus knew their hearts though. And he knew this kind of belief wasn't a genuine belief. Look at the next verse. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Immediately, here, a sentence later, they're angered by what Jesus just said. Look at verse 33. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from the Father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, 
you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you, not, because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Here Jesus says, it says, many had believed in him, but then, then in the next sentence, Jesus says, if you continue to believe, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's that word right there, that claim that Jesus is making that he will set them free that triggers them and the anger ignites. And they say, we have never been enslaved. Now, I don't think they were misunderstanding Jesus here. I don't think they were, they were thinking that Jesus was saying that they were literal slaves because they say, we've never been enslaved. And, and yet the Jewish people were just about enslaved by everybody that existed around them. They were enslaved by Egypt. They were enslaved by the Babylonians and the Persians and Greece and Rome. And so they had been oppressed and, and, and enslaved by most people. And yet I think they understood Jesus was talking about a spiritual slavery. And this is why his words stung. Because they had a spiritual pride. We are God's chosen people. We're children of Abraham. 
We are the good guys, Jesus. We don't need your spiritual freedom or whatever you are talking about. We're, we're doing pretty well. And yet Jesus is saying to them, no. Yes, yes, you're descendants of Abraham, but no, you are not true Israel. You're not true descendants of Abraham because if you were, you would believe in me. You're not true children of God as you claim because if you were, you would believe in me. And so Jesus here is, is pushing back on their outward appearance of belief in him and saying, no, you don't really believe. And if you did, then there would be evidence, there would be fruit that would be showing up in your life. And, and some of that fruit would be your, your faith in me. You say you believe in God. If you really believed in God the Father, then you would accept me and believe in me and believe who I say that I am, that I am the light of the world, and that only in me you can have true freedom from this bondage of sin. And Jesus says, another fruit is that you'll continue in my word. You will remain. You will hold fast. You will keep my words. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ongoing nature of this. And so this is another fruit for us to consider as well. If I'm claiming to be a follower of Jesus, is there evidence of that in my life? Am I trusting in him alone? Am I believing in him? Am I continuing in my faith? Am I continuing to trust in him? Then that's an evidence that I really am his disciple. And he says, and the, the truth will set you free. This freedom that he's talking about is a, a freedom from this bondage, this slavery to sin that all of us are born into. You, you might be here today, though, and say, I am trusting in Jesus, and yet I don't feel very free. I, I do still feel stuck in sin. A couple things there. One it's, it's helpful for us to speak this truth to ourselves. That if you are trusting in Jesus, the Son has set you free. To believe that, to cling to that in faith. And, and like I said earlier, this isn't a promise or an expectation that we will not sin anymore. But it is saying that sin has a different kind of grip, a different kind of authority over us, that it is no longer ruling over us in that kind of a way where we're unable, powerless against it. Now, if, if you are trusting in Christ, then, then no, there is a new word that is spoken about us, that, that Jesus has break, broken that power over us the authority, the enslaving nature of sin so that when faced with temptation, there is a way to escape. But yet we can still feel stuck. We can still feel like continually falling. And, and what Jesus says is it's the truth. It's the Son who sets you free and it's the truth that sets you free. And so what we need is to preach 
truth to ourselves over and over and over again about who Jesus says we are, about what he has done for us, about who he is, about, about what is greater in this life for us to live for. But there could also be physical addictions that could play into a component of this to, to where you might need help. You might need some sort of group counseling or help or physical rehab and detox uh, or, or just some sort of counseling, professional counseling, and all of those things might be necessary and helpful. But along with those things, also, you need this truth that freedom is possible. It is yours in Christ. And so don't give up. And don't sit here and think, okay, this is just who I am. I'm going to just keep sinning like this. I'm, I'm done fighting against it. No, fight against it because we are free in Christ. This is the, the freedom that he has purchased for us. So how does Jesus have that kind of authority? This is an astonishing claim. He's offering grace. He's offering to be the light of the world. He's offering to be the only truth that can really set us free. This is what we come to the end of this chapter as he's dialoguing with them about Abraham and who he is and how believing in him means you will never die. And he's speaking of eternal life, but they're saying, no, Abraham died. And, and he said, oh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And so then they say, oh, were you alive then? You, were you alive back when Abraham was alive? And so then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I was. No, that's not what he said, is it? That's maybe what Jehovah's Witness would interpret this passage. They would say Jesus, Jesus was the first creation. And so it's, it's okay to say that he predates Abraham. The son predates Abraham. But Jesus isn't just saying, I predate Abraham. Jesus says, he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And this is the Old Testament name for God. This is what created so much anger in them that they immediately are picking up rocks to try to kill him. Is that Jesus is claiming to be this God who, who spoke to Moses and said, you want to tell them who sent you? Tell them I am sent you. And in Isaiah 40 through 50, several times, God refers to himself as the God who is the I am. In the Greek translations of those Old Testament passages, it's the same, ego, a me. And so Jesus here is not just claiming to be a good prophet. He's, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Yahweh. John's given us this chapter to persuade us to believe in who Jesus is. We can't, we can't come to a chapter like this and just stay neutral or indifferent or bored with Jesus. We, we can rebel against him. We can reject him. We can be angry with him and want him dead. That's where they landed at the end of this chapter. Or we can believe and 
and turn to him for grace and turn to him as the only light of this world and, and turn to him as the only truth and freedom. And in our hearts then, over and over again in John's gospel, we, we keep coming to this theme of it's, it's to believe in who Jesus is and we need, church, to hear this over and over and over again. And what it should do is cause our hearts to erupt in worship of Christ, to see him as the only one worth living for, to see him as worth dying for, to see him as the only one worthy of our worship, worthy of our faith, worthy of our trust, to see him as the light of the world. Jesus offers grace. He offers light in the middle of this darkness. And he offers us freedom. And the call for all of us then is to turn from anything else and put all of our hope and trust in Jesus. Let's pray.